Hello and welcome to the Sutera Trap Talk podcast. As the global leader in sustainable pest control, Sutera works tirelessly to deliver quality products customers can trust, ones that boast consistent chemistries and the most reliable hardware on the market. My name is Carly Petrovic, and I'll be your host for today's episode of the Trap Talk podcast. Joining me is Dr. Emily Sims, a Northern California native who discovered a passion for applied entomology and integrated pest management as a teenager, eventually earning her BS, MS, and PhD degrees in entomology from the University of California in Riverside and Davis. Prior to joining Sutera, Dr. Sims served as the UC Cooperative Extension Area IPM Advisor in the Sacramento Valley and as Associate Director of Agriculture for the statewide IPM program, working alongside growers, PCAs, and others in the orchard industry to address pest management issues and share advancements. Today, Dr. Sims joins us to discuss everything growers need to know about sprayable pheromone mating disruption in order to effectively address their biggest pest problems. Tell me a little bit about your background in this field and how you began working with Sutera. I've been working in California agriculture for going on 30 years. I always kind of have to, to go back and, and, and realize that it, it, it really has been that long. Um, so I've been working in Cal Ag for almost you know 35 years. Um, I started working for an independent PCA consulting firm as a teenager. Um, I answered the phones and routed things through the CB radio, so that gives you an idea of, of how long ago that was. Um, was building, you know, monitoring traps in the office, and then they took me out in the field, and I started learning how to scout and look for different things and help with, you know, small-scale experiments and and all of that. Um, and from there, I was really encouraged by the the owner of that firm to go on and and get my education. So from there, I went on and I pursued. A bachelor's and then a master's and then a PhD in entomology through the University of California system in Riverside and in Davis. Throughout that entire time, my focus was really on applied integrated pest management, applied entomology with a focus on agricultural entomology. So always, you know, how to help the ag community, how to help growers, um, always with that very kind of end user approach in mind. Um, from there, um, I went into the UC Cooperative Extension System for several years where I was an area integrated pest management advisor um, within the, the UCCE system and the associate director of ag for the UC statewide IPM program that's based out of Davis and kind of generates a lot of that, um, that, that kind of flagship web-based IPM content for the state. Um, from there, um, I was contacted by Sutera um, to join their technical field team. And it really was an opportunity to bring me back into the world of pheromones, the world of mating disruption, and really dive dive deeper back into those types of things um, and really get to, again, kind of work in a way that really helps growers at the end of the day, bringing solutions to the field. Um, so my current position is as the senior manager of technical field services with Sutera, which as you know, is one of the, the global leaders in sustainable pest management and pheromone-based solutions, both mating disruptants and monitoring tools and some other types of, of kind of uh, low impact products on a global scale. Okay, so what is sprayable mating disruption? So sprayable mating disruption products are what are called micro encapsulated formulations in a capsule suspension. That's kind of some of the, the 
pesticide formulation terminology um, that goes around that. So um, they're designed to be sprayed on like a conventional agrochemical, like an insecticide, but with that very unique, different mode of action of mating disruption that we're used to with um, like the puffers or aerosols or some of the hand applied dispensers. Um, and so I, I kind of think about it as this, this sort of hybrid, right? It's not a pesticide. It doesn't kill. It still has that unique mode of action, but it's packaged and and applied in a way that's very familiar to ag in terms of it's sprayed on like many of our other agrochemicals are. Um, we call these, these micro encapsulated formulations, we call them micro caps. And we can think of these micro caps as billions and billions of teeny tiny little pheromone dispensers out in the orchard. Um, and, and what's really unique about this and what, what Sutera's team of engineers has been able to do is provide this engineering around that pheromone active ingredient um, with that micro cap so that it is both at the same time protected from those real world elements, but in a way that it's able to slowly and continuously release that, you know, that pheromone active ingredient inside into the environment. And it really is kind of a, a chemical engineering marvel in terms of like advancements within, within the mating disruption field. Um, these microcaps have to be robust, you know, withstand the elements, but then again, allow that pheromone into the environment. Okay, great, good. So how can sprayable mating disruption be used to reduce or eliminate pest problems? Basically, tell us how it works. Right, right. So like any mating disruptant, um, whatever the platform is, um, sprayable formulations function by inhibiting the ability of mates to locate one another, successfully mate and ultimately produce viable offspring or offspring that are capable, basically viable eggs that are capable of turning into a live larva or a live nymph at the end of the day. Um, for many of the agricultural pests that we have products for and for a lot of the key agricultural pests, it's the female that produces and emits the pheromone and it's the male that cues in on that and responds and then and then flies to the female. So when we add mating disruption pheromones into the environment, for example, with sprayable microcaps, what we're doing is inhibiting the ability of the male to locate that female. Basically, this, this kind of how the disruption ultimately works to reduce the populations is it can completely block the male ability from ever finding a female throughout the entire duration of both of their lifespans. He searches forever. They don't live that long as adults. He dies. She sits there calling forever, waiting for a mate to find her. He never does. She dies. But the other mechanism at play is that um, it can delay his ability to find her. So he's confused, but he eventually finds her. With these females, they're, they're quite short-lived, but each successive day that she lives, her, her egg resource becomes less and less viable. So if she doesn't get mated until day two, three, four, or five, the total number of those viable eggs that she'll lay drops down dramatically. And so it's kind of these, these combinations of these two, you know, you block it completely or you delay it significantly. And what we see is that results in significant decreases generation after generation, each population becoming much, much smaller than the, the generation before. And what this leads to, obviously, lower population, reduced crop damage, efficacy of the product. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about how that, that smaller population size actually allows all of your other pest management inputs to be that much more effective as well.
So now does this work with any pest or what pests are kind of great candidates for sprayable mating disruption? So um, we actually there's an there's a number of of species for which sprayable mating disruption is available, depending on the system and where you are in the world, the impact of that species. The very first was actually for pink bullworm. Um, that was the very first sprayable, and that's that's decades ago now. So this is not like a, a brand new novel um, release platform for um, for mating disruptants. Um, some of the the key primaries for which we have sprayable mating disruption formulations are navel orange worm. Um, that's primarily a nut crop pest, um, even though it says navel orange worm. It's really not a citrus pest. It's, you know, almonds, pistachios, walnuts, uh, vine mealybug, which is a great pest, codling moth, which can be a pest in Californian walnuts, big pest in palm fruit, uh, Pacific Northwest, and globally, um, diamondback moth, which is a, a very, very critical issue in coal crops and is highly resistant to a lot of the traditional insecticide chemistries. Um, oriental fruit moth, peach twig borer, beet army worm, tomato pinworm, false codling moth. We have we have um, lots of different sprayable sprayable options, and for a, a wealth of other species, we've got some of those other platforms as well. So we've got aerosols for many of these, hand applied dispensers for many of these, and and lots of others. Um, what makes a particular pest a great candidate for a sprayable mating disruption? Um, there, there's there's something to do a little with the ecology of the pest, um, but really it's just a matter of of providing growers um, different options of platforms. Like we love the idea that we can provide a sprayable option or an aerosol option, or in some cases a sprayable and an aerosol and a dispenser, what have you, so that growers have that flexibility to choose what matches best with their operation. Okay, great. So this wasn't a question I necessarily had um, prior to that last response, but um, so how would one decide what is the best kind of delivery method for their operation? What factors kind of go into that? Um, so, you know, availability of which platform, um, a number of factors. So, you know, when we think about like an aerosol or um, like a hand applied dispenser, um, we typically think of those as you make that decision early in the season and you're going to get season long and it's a certain investment and you kind of make that decision early in the season. Um, you also have some additional maybe labor inputs that go into hanging those and they're potentially not as familiar as the, hey, put it in a tank and go out that a grower might be used to. So it's really just a matter of, of a lot of different things with the sprayable formulation, I really like it because one, it's it's familiar, right? How I apply it is familiar. Two, it allows you that flexibility to maybe not have that, that upfront investment in the season and be able to pivot and respond to in-season conditions. Um, it allows you to, to maybe more economically get mating disruption into your orchard, right? If you're not doing season long, you're doing a couple of sprayables, you can target one particular time of a certain flight or phenology of the pest or a couple of particular times through the season or where there's peak crop vulnerability. So it allows this flexibility, affordability, sort of that precision approach. Hey, I might not need full-blown season-long mating disruption everywhere. This block, hey, maybe just a spray at two different timings or something like that. So that kind of precision approach to mating disruption and especially when we're in seasons where crop prices are 
are, are not as high as they, they can be. And growers necessarily have to think about input costs and cutting costs and things like that. We, you know, mating disruption still serves a, a big value in helping suppress populations and drive those numbers down. Um, but it's understandable, hey, I don't know if I want to commit. I don't know what the population is going to do this year. I don't quite know what the prices are going to be. It allows for them to pivot in season. And, and I think that's one of the big, big benefits there. Okay, great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So now what if an operation is using beneficial insects? Um, how does sprayable mating disruption work with those other um, things that growers might do to limit pest populations? Yeah. So I, I like to kind of first couch it of, of, I think sometimes people think that operations using beneficial insects necessarily means I'm purchasing and releasing beneficials. And that's certainly the case in some of our systems, but others um, a lot of times rely on what we call conservation biological control. So you're not buying any additional inputs. You're not releasing any additional natural enemies. You're merely de developing your IPM program to conserve and enhance what's already there working for you, right? A little bit of that cheap free labor sort of thing. Um, so um, that said, this applies to, to either case, right? Obviously, if you're if you're if you're buying and releasing, you want to protect those. So you don't want to buy release and then come in with an insecticide right away and knock them out. But at the same time, even if you're just conserving, you want to have um, pest mitigation approaches that allow you to conserve and enhance. And so with that, mating disruption, um, sprayable or any platform are highly specific to the target pest. So it uses the pheromone chemistry of that target pest. So it's not going to have a detrimental impact, um, like a toxicity level detrimental impact on your biological control agents, your natural enemies, your predators, your parasitoids, um, no direct harm there, nor does it harm other beneficials like your pollinators that we all wanna protect in the environment. So that high species specificity means that we're really just targeting that pest for which that mating disruptant was developed. Um, I actually consider mating disruption and bi biological control highly complementary, right? Because they're targeting different vulnerabilities in the pest life cycle. Mating disruption is targeting that 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 mating mate location aspect. Biological control is targeting another life stage, whether it's an egg parasitoid or a general predator that eats the larvae. So we're we're coming at it from multiple directions, which is the exact idea of a good IPM program, right? And so not only do they not harm each other, but they're actually really, really mutually beneficial. Um, it is important though, when we think about sprayable mating disruption is that um, they can be tank mixed, the, the mating disruption can be tank mixed with other types of agrochemicals. So if you're tank mixing with something that is more like a, an insecticide, you'll wanna be pretty careful about timing that um, and knowing how those particular insecticide mixes with the pheromone, if that's what you're doing, how those might impact your natural enemies. Okay, good. Good information there for sure. So now that with all your experience kind of in the field and in this field in general, um, what impacts have you seen sprayable mating disruption have on pest populations? Can you give some examples? Um, yeah, so I think I mentioned, you know, in terms of, you know, how these work for farmers and how they impact the pest populations, um, it's it's very quite easy to sort of model what disruption does, right? Um, in terms of, you know, at various levels of starting populations, um, the efficacy drives each generation down and, and you have models where you actually get negative population growth. And that's the ultimate goal, right? Um, 
in terms of kind of how how they work for farmers, like I said, some of the key features is that affordability and flexibility and use pattern. So how farmers can incorporate them into their overall program and operations is is one of the key features. And and there's there's no shortage of, of variable kind of use patterns and how how, how folks are using them effectively. Um, I like this ability to to tailor a sprayable type of disruption to again your operational schedule your pest cycle that you're watching closely your pest pressure that you're watching closely and then ultimately into your overall ipm goals right um we often get questions of is mating disruption an additive am i adding it to my existing program and keeping everything else the same um can it be used as a substitution for one of my other inputs and the, the answer to that is like it depends right it depends on where you are right now and it depends on the goals of your program and that's that's really where a lot of this flexibility lies um again kind of how it works for farmers like i said it's it's a familiar technology so to speak so they're able to spray it with their conventional equipment nothing nothing new or different needed so they can use a traditional air blast type sprayer it can go on aerially. Um, we've had some folks experimenting with drone applications as well as those start to get a, a little bit more popular. Um, but largely we've seen California growers in particular, and I, I, I live in California, so I'll say globally this is widely used, but specifically um, California growers have used our sprayable formulations with a lot of success both in population reduction, damage reduction, return on investment, um, particularly in the grape system for vine mealybug, the almond, really the almond system for NOW, some pistachio, a lot of pistachio tends to use the, the season-long puffer technology, um, coal crops for diamondback moth. We've seen a lot of grower success with, with incorporating into those systems. Great. So now, um, why is this particular form of pest management important for growers to use on their operations, even if they're doing some other things? Yeah, um, you know, this this always gets into the the not fun part of the conversation where you really kind of think about what's the future of agricultural and pest management and what are growers faced with? And I think that that we all kind of in the industry know that growers and operations managers and crop consultants are all really aware of the challenges facing ag um, as you know when we think about increased regulation that may be limiting our pesticide options to increasing pest pressure that we're seeing you know with some of these really mild winters and warmer summers um, all of this means that we really have to have fully realized ipm programs in place um, and i think I think everyone knows that that's becoming more and more critical as we're thinking toward the future. Um, really to be successful in managing our most destructive pests, we know we know that we have to kind of bring everything to the table. So whether it's our cultural controls and our chemical controls and exploiting biological control as much as you can and using things like behavioral modulators like mating disruption, they're all gonna have to have a place. We, we've really gotta keep pests populations quite low you know some of these key pests have very very low tolerance levels whether it's because you know navel orange worm for example gets into the harvestable nut kernel and can actually bring in some some toxicants with it or vine mealybug that's not just a direct pest but also vectors virus that can ultimately kill vines 
um, we know that that we need a lot of inputs in a lot of cases, but we have to be really, really careful to mitigate insecticide resistance development, um, comply with those regulatory issues, and really ensure this long-term sustainability of the program. So what we're talking about is, you know, we're not talking about going totally away from, from insecticides. They have their place. They, again, target a certain aspect of vulnerability. But what we do by incorporating the mating disruption and the cultural and the biological is extend the lifespan of those kind of important chemical tools as well within the bigger picture so that growers can continue to be successful going into the future. I think, you know, some of the other considerations are that, um, you know, for growers, there's there's flexibility in these non-toxic approaches like a mating disruption, right? We don't have to worry about MRLs or those negative residue levels. Um, they're Because they're so low toxicity or non-toxic, uh, we can often protect the crop right up until the day of harvest without worrying about MRLs. Uh, typically, there's very, very little what we call re-entry interval with a, with a sprayable formulation, meaning your crew can get right back to work in the field after, after an application. The re-entry intervals are, are four hours for a sprayable and zero for any of the other platforms. And I think all of these are, are things that, that growers you know, know they need to be considering. And then some of the added value that, that something like a mating disruption can bring, especially late in the season, close to harvest. Okay, great. So you touched on this a little bit, but how is kind of um, sprayable mating disruption used in conjunction with these other tools? What might it look like for a grower who is already like using some pesticides, using some biological approaches? How do those all work together? So I think, and I mentioned kind of the complementary nature with biocontrol, but really mating disruption, it, because it's it's got its unique place, it's complementary with everything. And again, if you look at that kind of population model approach to effective disruption drives numbers down. So that means, hey, if I've got to come in with an insecticide at time A or B or C, and it's going to kill 50% of the population with a great application, I'm killing 50% of a much smaller population already. So my ROI on my chemical just went way up. You know, same thing if you're thinking biological control. You know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to release or, or conserve, um, we've got a, a better ratio potentially of natural enemies to the bad guys, which can help further balance. So I think, you know, complementary, absolutely. And really also the idea that when you reduce that population, everything else you're doing is just almost amplified in terms of its efficacy. Okay. And how about some of the common misconceptions you encounter about sprayable mating disruption? Um, so with regard to sprayable specifically, I think that folks don't actually really know how affordable it can be. Um, I think that they think mating disruption, that's a capital investment, that's a big investment, right? Um, but if we think about um, the application costs per acre for sprayable mating disruptions, they're actually less now than many of our more commonly used selective insecticide products as, as we're kind of going into these more softer, newer generations, quote, more selective insecticide chemistries, those are, are getting out of the realm of the, the kind of the, the cheap sort of spray. And so we're actually um, right in line or, or quite a bit lower than those, than those types of investments. So that's, I think, one misconception. Um, the other is, is how long they last. And we do get much, much longer 
we'll call residual activity or, or action out of our, our spray. Well, micro-encapsulated formulations, which are designed to be slow release, then we get out of a lot of our um, more conventional insecticides. The other thing that's really important to remember is it's hard because it's like I'm spraying, most everything I spray kills. And it's like, okay, no, we got to remember that this spray doesn't actually kill anything. It's doing its disruption um, by releasing from those microcaps. So um, with that, we don't have to have that thorough coverage that most of the, the chemistries, the insecticide chemistries require. You've got to get really thorough coverage of, of the plant material typically for, for maximum efficacy. And with the microcaps, we need a uniform distribution, but because they don't have to come in contact, they just have to be in the environment to emit the pheromone, we don't need that type of coverage. So it's, it's important to remember it's sprayed on like an insecticide, but the mode of action is, is quite different. Um, so I think those are a couple of the probably just most common things to, to continue to remind folks about. Right. So now let's kind of talk about how sprayable mating disruption is changing the conversation around pest management and sustainability. Um, how is this uh, mode of action changing the game? Uh, well, you know, within mating disruption, it's just it's it's an option, right? It's a new option. And um, even though we've had sprayable formulations around for for a long time, I think that that the aerosols, the puffers, these other these other um, kind of approaches have gotten a, a lot of the attention. Um, but again, I think how it's changing the conversation is that growers deserve options. Um, they really deserve options for incorporating mating disruption in a manner that's comfortable to them, that's affordable to them, uh, that makes sense to their operation. And so what the sprayable products offer are just that additional choice of, hey, you know, I'm not I'm not a puffer user. It doesn't fit my my program or my operations or my mentality or, you know, dispensers don't fit my operations. Um, so when we think of, again, I kind of mentioned this earlier, when we think of what we call these season long, the, the aerosols or the hand applied dispensers. We, we typically make that decision quite early in the season. We know we know we're going to make that investment. And in many cases, we make that investment because it makes sense. Obviously, if you feel that season long approach makes the most sense to your operation and it totally pays for itself, you know, that's that's a great option. Um, but the sprayables, I think, can be used with that more reactive in-season precision approach, hey, I'm just going to target this part of the flight or this particular flight or, or you know, whole split through harvest or, you know, get out there where there's a lot of insect activity happening really late in the season where I can't spray something else because of uh, residue issues. Um, so I think that's that's the game changer is that flexibility and the idea that we can be reactive and, and kind of site-specific and precision with mating disruption as opposed to sort of always just that season-long approach. And it is a sustainable option, correct? Because of its low toxicity? Ab absolutely. I mean, all of the, the kind of features, advantages, benefits of, of these other types of platforms are, are completely the same with our, with our flowable option, our sprayable formulation options. Um, you know, yeah, that low toxicity, superior safety profile, very, very species specific you know, non-toxic, no environmental considerations kind of thing. Okay. And then Emily, anything you think I missed that it's important for growers to know about this option? Specifically with, with sprayable pheromones, not necessarily. More of a kind of a, a few general comments about kind of your overall IPM program. I think growers are 
are necessarily, you know, what's the ROI? Is this paying for itself? Am I getting, you know, getting bang for my buck? And obviously there's always the dollars and cents. When we talk mating disruption, we talk about the intangibles a little bit, right? Um, that more long-term sustainability, all of those other kind of things with regard to preserving beneficials, the environment, all of that. But I just really always try to encourage um, folks to, to continuously evaluate that overall IPM program. So what were the inputs that were used? How did those contribute to kind of your damage reductions or your, your quality preservation or enhancement? Um, and, and look at that IPM program pretty holistically in an ongoing way. Um, it's pretty hard to tease apart individual inputs. Most of the pests for which we've developed mating disruption are pests for which we have to attack them from, from multiple ways. So it's not always easy to say, okay, my program involved both cultural methods and biological control and disruption and some insecticides. And I got to this number, so which one paid for itself? So we have to be a bit holistic when we're looking at that. Um, but but I encourage this so that they can kind of continue to evolve their program on an ongoing basis. And to me, it's a, a learning feedback loop. And the folks that do this for a living, growers and their consultants, they, they absolutely really know this. Um, I think that that it's important with with a, a you know uh, that long term IPM approach it, that that incorporates mating disruption or these other types of population reduction over time. That that we don't just look at a single year snapshot either in terms of our evaluation. We have to think about kind of you know kind of a multi multi year approach to evaluation. Um, obviously, you know at the end of the day that that damage data, you know where did we end up on a grade sheet or yield or whatever. That's the holy grail, right? That's really going to be the proof in the pudding of to how did our program do? Where did we? Where, what were the hits? What were the misses? What are the refinements that we need to to have going forward? You know, I, I had a couple of comments, and I don't know that they'll fit within this cut and paste. Um, but but oftentimes we also use some various monitoring tools to evaluate how well disruption is working, or at least um, kind of. Have a have a validation or verification that the mating disruptants are active in the field, um, and we've seen that with the increased adoption of mating disruption, we've had new monitoring tools come to the table. So typically, when you're in a non-mating disruption environment, one of the easiest ways to monitor if it's available is to put out a pheromone trap. It allows you to attract typically the males, and you can count the numbers understand the population density and follow the population cycles. When we go into a mating disruption environment, you put out that trap with a pheromone lure in it. And because there's disruption all around, the males no longer are able to find that trap to any high degree. So we typically see a, a very significant amount of what we call trap suppression or inhibition with traps just with pheromone lures. And, and we want to see that. That kind of shows us a comfort level of, okay, my disruptants are active in the environment. I've got that, you know, pheromone cloud going. Um, and so, so that's, that is a measure that we use, but more and more we've realized that uh, we still want to be able to track flights or population densities. And so we need other tools. And so that's where they've developed other types of attractants to use in the traps that aren't pheromone based. And so there's no confusion about the moth to find those, right? Um, and so some of those, particularly in the navel orange worm system, um, are either like the egg traps or they're adult female traps that use um, like ground pistachio meal 
and that's what she's signaling in on. And more recently, um, something called phenylpropionate or PPO attractant that actually attracts both males and females. And that's paired with a pheromone lure. To, it kind of amps up that, that what we call the PPO attractant. And so those are specifically designed to continue to catch within the mating disruption environment because they're cueing in on a different type of attractant. What we've seen is some confusion about um, kind of practitioners and folks putting those traps designed to still catch and mating disruption, putting them in the field and, and catching moths and being worried that their disruption isn't working. And so I just caution everyone to make sure you fully understand the type of trap and the type of attractant that you're using within any environment, mating disruption or not, and what that trap data tells you. And if there's any kind of confusion around that, there are experts, I think, you know, within the traps and lures company, certainly at Sutera, and within the, the UC and USDA sort of educational and extension system that can help help people understand kind of this, all this part of how they're evaluating their disruption and, and all of that with these sort of newer monitoring tools. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Emily. That was a very comprehensive view of, of Sprayable and just in general. Thanks, Carly. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sutera Trap Talk podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon. 